Hello, everybody. Um, I'm here tonight with Steve Topple from the Canary, and we're going to be talking our way through the G20, COP26, the NHS, and uh, also uh, Steve has a partner who suffers from ME and perhaps complications of, of that. My, I'll, I'll leave him to say it. I know it's... <laughs> I'll just call it ME. And um, he also does a lot with music. So uh, we're going to be talking about all those subjects. And uh, welcome to everybody that's viewing already. And Steve, can we bring on Steve? Hi. Oh, yeah. Lizzie Fletcher. Hello. <laughs> we were just saying how long it is since I think you interviewed me the last time <laughs> at the NHS March. Um, we're we're sort of we're so old that we're trying to figure out how many years ago that was. Well, so old we're not yeah. old, Lizzie. And um, that was 2017, I think, wasn't it? I'm sure. Um, I'm sure it's 2017 when I was out a, and about with a camera. What a different world it was then, and we were campaigning on the similar subject, saving our NHS, and we're still campaigning to save our NHS, and it's looking even worse and worse and worse, isn't it, for our NHS? But first of all, let's let's do it on a timeline. The G20 um, that was an exclusive club of mostly wealthy nations. And they met in Italy just before COP26 and they paid little more than lip service to the world's leading problems while preserving their own financial dominance across the world. Um, USA, they fought hard for uh, tech giants like um, Facebook, like Google to be exempt from the one thing that they did try to implement, which was a minimum tax rate of 15% across the globe, except the USA have made <clears throat> all tech giants exempt from that. So in doing that, I think the USA are going to realise something like 60 billion income from the higher tax rate for wealthy businesses. But the because of the tech giants being operational in so many, well, just about every country across the world, uh, those countries will not receive any tax from those tech giants, which is already a problem and, it, and it's, it's going to be worse if this is implemented. Uh, have you got any ideas of, you know, like, have you got anything you want to say about the G20 for a start? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I'm conscious that it's, it, it's pre-watershed broadcast, Lizzie. Um, but of course, the, the tax plan was something that I honed in on from the G20 as well. Um, this has been a plan that has been development um, in development for many years now. Um, and already they're talking of the fact that the deadline is going to have to be pushed back um, to at least 2023 before it can be implemented because of the fact that each individual country will have to pass its own legislation. As, as you enunciated, um, US is already putting it, its own rules about this in place with regards to tech giants. I mean, again, there's a lot of hot air and a lot of waffle. I, I did a lot of works, work on sort of tax avoidance and tax evasion um, in light of the Panama Papers several years ago, um, and I, I sort of started digging around. I um, mean, even though I was shocked by what I uncovered about the way that um, most notably British, of course, um, jurisdictions like the British Virgin Islands, Cayman Islands, etc., etc., have these mechanisms in place to allow so many offshore entities, as they're called, um, subsidiaries, basically, of companies to funnel money through them um, and therefore avoid tax they're paying. Of course, Joe Biden's own state, um, Delaware, is another massive tax avoidance centre, which might have something to do with what he's proposing. Um, but does it really change anything? Well, no, of course not. I mean, the thing is, excluding what Biden said about tech giants and social media corporations, 15% um, is still very low taxation rate for these companies. Yeah, wasn't it 21% or 26% that Biden himself was proposing? Or was it Trump even, perhaps? Trump proposed 21 to 26%. 
I know, it's, it's funny looking back at Trump now, isn't it? Sometimes <laughs> you think, <laughs> despite his sort of racist, misogynistic, xenophobic attitude, um, you do have to you do have to wonder about Biden. Um, look, I mean, the thing is, 15% is nowhere near enough anyway, as it is, of course, the idea being to level out this across, across the globe. But when you have systems and structures in place which essentially make tax avoidance and evasion a systemic issue then just saying that sort of the G20 countries and and other nations setting this corporate tax rate of 15% will somehow solve the problem it won't and but it it won't solve the problem either of the fact that we live in this society and our society is structured in a way which I want to talk about in terms of um, COP26 and climate change as well, where these people think they can get away with this, where corporations somehow think they have the right to extract all this money, most notably quite often from the global south, which again plays into COP26, which we'll talk about. They somehow have this right to extract this amount of money. When I was researching what goes on in the um, Bahamas, um, with regards to tax avoidance, you they publish a list of all the companies that pay tax there. Chevron, the oil company, multi-billion pound global oil company, they have 200, well, at the time, in 2016 when I did this, they had 263 different companies operating throughout the Bahamas, um, yeah. all fiddling tax from here, there and everywhere, um, and essentially meaning that their tax bill was next to nothing of what it should have been. And, con and continents like Africa are the places which are most impacted by this. Huge amounts of tax being lost um, for the people of Africa who need it um, via these systems. And I can't see that what the G20 proposed is a little more than, well, of course, it's not more than lip service. We know this. I don't even know why I'm raising that question. Um, it is nothing more than lip service. It's not going to change anything unless you say Biden is already making moves to exclude tech giants from this. So, yeah. Uh, uh and our mainstream media say oh it's a major shock that, uh, <laughs> that he's exempting the tech giants and it's like but you're owned by the tech giants or you're owned by murdoch or reach or whoever you're owned by you're owned by and mainstream media is owned 90 percent by the very people that are in the background of g20 making sure that their puppets our politicians say what what they've been told to say so how can they even pretend to be shocked and don't you think it's so blatant isn't it the corruption is so blatant. but of course it is but it always has been it's like there's this there's this huge um kind of shock a Tory sleaze at the minute that these people have second jobs and um they're earning so much money and of course I mean this isn't anything this isn't new I mean politicians generally by default are inherently unpleasant people in one way, shape or form. I couldn't really name on, I, I, I might have enough fingers and toes to name the decent <laughs> ones, but possibly not. Um, and But there's still this shock that this is going on. And uh, I mean, it, and it's only got worse over the years. I mean, I, I, I turned, I, I turned 40 last year. Um, <gasps> and uh, I know. <laughs> So that's kind of a disaster. Um, I turned 40 last year and and even I feel like I've been seeing this just for years now and, and it, and it shouldn't, shouldn't be a shock at all. And it also shouldn't be a shock that Biden wants to free up the big tech companies from tax given the way that society is going generally. I mean, we are moving towards, Naomi Klein predicted this in 2007 with the shock doctrine. We are moving towards this corporatist system where huge multinationals essentially dominate the landscape. Um, small businesses are being sucked up constantly by them. And the pandemic just put that effect on steroids with so many smaller companies going out of business. So, of course, these huge corporations, which now the majority of them have more wealth than the majority of countries, as has been well documented and researched, and um, it's no surprise that Biden would be doing this. And of course, again, this isn't a new story. I, I've written a lot about a brilliant study out of Switzerland in 2011, I believe, which was published in The New Scientist, which worked out who owns what companies um, out of something like 54,000 multinationals in total across the globe there were at the time. And it worked out, well, who actually owns these multinationals? And it came back to it that 40% of the 54,000 multinationals were owned by just 147 companies. 
And that was then, that was 2000, that's a decade ago. Uh, the problem of what Naomi Klein calls and I call corporatism has just increased now. And, and Biden's willingness to let the giant tech corporations off tax in the way that he he has um, is is another symptom of the illness, really. Yeah, to the ordinary person, G20 has no relevance whatsoever mm. in, in our lives, does it? And the only impact that, that will be felt from it is the fact that more and more decline of services are provided because we don't have that tax income. We don't have, uh, we, we, we won't have any support networks. We won't have the infrastructure. And soon, soon enough, you know, we had these memes a few years ago of uh, a very rich, beautiful looking, pleasant land over there behind a wall. And the rest of us were in slum dwellings on the mm. outside saying, mm. oh, the wealth will trickle down any minute. <laughs> but yeah. that is the reality for so many people now, isn't it? But it is, and it, it's almost, I, I, I think the word dystopian is overused, but in some senses it is almost dystopian. It, it, there's elements of kind of 80s sci-fi really in what's going on, except it's not quite as fantastical as maybe maybe the films imagined. But it's slightly are, grubby, isn't it? It's very grubby. Yeah, it's kind of, it's not as good, it's not as clever, It's it, but, but in essence that's kind of, what's going on. I mean, you, you see it with the advance of technology, you see it with the power and reach of the tech companies now. And as you say, most lay people in society don't necessarily don't necessarily see or feel directly in their mind the effects of things like the G20. But you see it when the public services are decimated, when um, the benefits are cut, so on and so forth. It, it, it's that rolling effect, but it's equating the two together. And of course, when you have a media that is completely controlled still by these very same corporations, then of course, it, it's going to be no different than when you have the corporations controlling the social media that people use. It is, it is dystopian. It's just not quite the kind of um, flying cars and um, that kind of dystopian that sci-fi imagined. But the principles are still the same thing. It's like universal credits. I said um, way back in 2017 that universal credit was essentially this sort of dystopian world where all people who couldn't work, people who are disabled people, chronically ill people, single lone parents, so on and so forth, would be lumped together under this sort of dystopian system where it was almost like um, an online slum, if you like, where people would be yeah. stuck on this and the only people who'd get off it would be the ones who could work more and earn more and, and, and earn enough and climb the greasy ladder to get out of it. Um, well, even it, that's it, not possible, is it now? Because, well, no, uh, I'll come know, on to that in a second, Yeah, no, it's not. And, and, and I said back then in 2017 that it, it was this dystopian kind of nightmare, um, almost digital slum. And it's very interesting, Philip Olsten then came out, the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty came out in 2018 and called it a digital, digital sanitized version of, of a workhouse, um, which yeah. essentially is what it is, is what they've created, because the creators of Universal Credit um, were essentially a group of, well, some of them were Christian fundamentalists who believed that people being in poverty was their own fault. It was a very kind of Victorian mindset of that they called um, it's these five pathways to poverty, which were um, addiction, mental health, um, welfare, dependency, and a couple of other things. And basically saying, well, poor people are poor because because of their own silly mistakes, and we need to re-educate them to um, learn better and not be in poverty. And anyone who doesn't get re-educated to an adequate standard will be left on universal credit. Um, and that's essentially what we're seeing playing out. And it's now actually been made even worse. I know we're going off topic slightly, but just briefly, it's been made worse actually by what Rishi Sunak did in the budget with universal credit, because essentially what he's done by lowering the so-called taper rate, which is the amount of money that universal credit takes off people's earnings when they work. He's lowered it from 63% to 55% under the headline that people will get to keep more of their own hard-earned hard money. Um, actually, what he's done is now made it even harder to come off universal credit. The Institute for Fiscal Studies did this brilliant analysis where they said that a lone mother with one child with average rent would need to be earning £40,000 a year to get off universal credit. Yeah. 
I mean, if that's not just ridiculous, I don't know what is. And it also kind of defeats even Ian Duncan Smith's idea of universal credit, that it would end welfare dependency and it would pay people to be in work. I mean, 40 grand to be able to get off universal credit, but that's the that's the reality of it. And it's just another example of, of the dystopia that we're seeing and everything that was said in the G20s surrounding tax and, and big tech. And, and it's just a part of, of that it, it infects all of our existences really and it, it's only going to get worse unfortunately i can't i can't currently see an improvement but well neither can i and and at g20 of course the the leaders of the free world <laughs> don't laugh too loudly um they they'd already made their decisions including the 1.5 percent uh yep. you know global global uh, temperatures how's that going now well, we'll, we'll get on to that, won't we? So, well, Johnson has packed his trunk and said goodbye to the circus. Softly <laughs> went with the trumpety trump, trump, trump. So he's he's <clears throat> gone to he's he popped down to London to have a word with a few nurses, didn't he? Um, yeah. Without a mask. Yes. He didn't wear a mask at the G20. I know. I, I was watching this morning today, Lizzie, as it happens, actually. And even this morning, we're angry. Philip and, Philip and Holly were angry about Johnson not wearing a mask after they courted yeah. him and took selfies with him um, back in 2019. But yes, ma another major scandal. John Johnson doesn't care about anyone else. Shocker. Anyway, sorry, yeah. carry on. Well, no, it was a, it was a distraction. Uh, of yeah. course, it's a distraction, a huge distraction. And while everybody is angry about Johnson not wearing a mask, they're not taking any notice of Jeffrey Cox, the MP who who has spent very little time in this country, let alone in Parliament, and uh, Patterson, you know, uh, and all the other corrupt uh, Tory MPs. We can name the corrupt Tory MPs. We we can't what quite. Was that about three hundred and sixty something of them, isn't it? <laughs> I think yeah, there might be one or two. That, oh, the old that Dennis Skinner adage, isn't it? Half the people over there are liars. Um, yes, yes. All right, half of them aren't liars. <laughs> <laughs> so he he's gone. He went on his way back to COP twenty six uh, yeah. last night. He said, uh, "Right, I'm waiting. I hope someone's got some ideas when I get back, and some decisions made are made." But they'd already made their decisions at the G20, and they've even reneged on those. So uh, the only thing that is happening at COP26 in Glasgow is what's happening outside, the realisation that the people are not going to put up with this anymore, that we're getting educated, that we're learning, and that we're getting together, which is something, I must, I must say this, is what Jeremy Corbyn created. Before Jeremy Corbyn, would you or I have ever had the temerity to think that we could uh, be a part of society reporting on, <coughs> on the, reporting the truth about what's happening? Would we have had the courage? Would we have had the, the strength of character to do that? Maybe, and we'd have been heard by a by our local mates, our mates at the local pub, we'd have been heard by, you know, our friends would have and relatives would have like, oh God, they're on a rant again. Let's <laughs> let's go and get a pizza takeaway or something. So, um, but I think that's what Jeremy Corbyn did. He enabled people to realise that actually that we have the power. And outside of the COP26, hundreds and thousands of people have, have been demonstrating and producing their COP26 TV, uh, the Peace and Justice Project um, have produced uh, an alternative COP26, DM25, which is Yanis Yarifakis, have, uh, has gone over and, and contributed George Monboyu's boyos up there with the cop 26 tv which is extinction rebellion based but it's a it, it's it's a cop 26 coalition and it's all all the lefty movements and you know i'm a founder member of extinction rebellion it was created here in stroud I, i'm sure all the audience knows this already i won't bore you with the details but all of us with the exception of perhaps one but all of us were just brought into this world of politics and how it impacts every aspect of our lives 
by Jeremy Corbyn and by his speeches and by his enabling of ordinary people to, to realise their own power and their own strength. So <coughs> I think, you know, the, the executive that, that goes on TV, If I feel so sorry for people who just watch television or read newspapers because they know absolutely nothing of what's happening, do they? This is a challenge. Um, and I, I think you make an interesting point, actually, about about Corbyn and about the the, the movement around and to the side of that. One that I, I probably maybe haven't analysed or considered maybe as much as I should have done. But of, of course, I mean, the Canary, for example, was founded in October 2015. Um, and it, 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 we sort of rose in tandem with Corbyn, if you like. Um, but it was Corbyn's program and, and what was going on with that movement more broadly, which really cemented our status. Um, it, it, it's quite interesting to think what would have gone on if, if, if Jeremy Corbyn hadn't been elected. The Canaries still would have been formed. Those talks were in, in progress already, um, for example. But if Jeremy Corbyn hadn't been elected Labour leader, where would we be now? It's quite, yeah, it's quite an interesting thought. Um, with regards to COP26, oh, I mean... <laughs> That I, I could have recorded my G20 monologue just then and just hit play. Um, yeah. <laughs> there was a brilliant article in The Ecologist today, which I read, um, um, which was interviewing a group of young people who had been at protesting at COP26. And one of them called it a piece of capitalist theatre. Um, which it, it, it essentially is. I mean, we talk about the 1.5 degrees Celsius target, which was which was discussed heavily at G20. Obviously, that's gone out the window now. We've we've got the published first draft of COP26's plan, and essentially it's saying 1.5 degrees not not going to happen. Not um, it's not possible. No. Um, it, it, it was sponsored by fossil fuel companies. Fossil fuel companies were allowed places there. Um, I mean. It, it, uh, there's nothing I can add to the commentary as such on on COP20, which hasn't already been said. That's essentially a piece of greenwashing um, propaganda, and and there's very little little action that's come out of it. What what concerns me, and I said this on a, another show I did with a guy called Josh Hamilton, um, who has a excellent podcast, and I'll, I'll tweet the link to that and. Um, you can give that watch as well. He's very, very good, lovely guy. Um, he was asking me about climate change as well. And, and I said in slightly more drawn out terms than I'm going to say it now because I'm conscious of time with us. Um, what concerns me with the climate catastrophe and with sort of the ecological breakdown that we're seeing, which is an important point because it's often framed just as the climate crisis and it's not at all. It, it's complete ecological breakdown, which is happening. Yeah. Um, my concern is that... I believe in some way, shape or form, the system and its proponents, that's the politicians and the corporations and so on and so forth, they will in some measure fix this. Um, it's not in their interest to see the planet in a complete state of catastrophe. At the end of the day, the system and therefore by default the very wealthiest people are all the more reliant, if you like now, on us spending and us having money and us being consumers, um, whether that be in the digital economy or whether that be in real life. It, it, we, are, we are all, in some respects, more of a consuming society than we ever have been. Um, and for us to experience some sort of major catastrophe is not in their interest, unless, of course, they're going to jet off and colonise another planet. Um, my concern is that they will, in some way, shape or form, fix this. Um, whether it's going to be to the benefit of everyone remains to be seen. Um, but it's what's going to be left in its wake, because what is missing for me from a lot of the narratives, especially coming out of the likes of the Green Party, um, but also a lot of the sort of climate activism movements more broadly. Um, there's a real lack of recognition of class. Um, there's a lot of talk of the global south, um, but there's a recognition, lack of recognition of class and also a lack of recognition of the fact that this should be an opportunity for a complete systems change. And currently it's not looking like that at all. What it's looking like is that we are trying to persuade corporations and persuade politicians to mend their ways, but keep these systems of hierarchy and structures in place, yeah. essentially keep corporatism 
corporate capitalism going, but make it greener and make sure we save the planet. Um, this is a species level problem, which is just, in my opinion, as big as the climate catastrophe, because the whole point being, it is this, it's this system that we live under as a species, which is a hierarchical system where we essentially hand power to a few people who control everything we do, the rest of us do, which has been this way for thousands and thousands of years. Um, it's that hierarchical system which has got us to this point, which has allowed a small group of people to essentially facilitate the abuse of our planet so much that we're now at this point. Um, and my, as I say, my concern is that, well, if we allow politicians and corporations to fix this, which I currently I cannot see no other way and no one coming with anything which indicates there's going to be anything else but that, then it's also going to cement the very system and the very way of thinking we have as a species which got us into this mess in the first place. Um, yeah. And it's back to dystopia again, essentially. Um, and I, I, I see it as a major problem. As I say, I talked about this at length in another interview. I went on for about 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> that's sort of my potted opinion that that will save the planet um, in some way, shape or form, whether it's to the benefit of us all or not remains to be seen. But the climate crisis will be averted, um, but actually will be in, if not just as bad, a, a worse position um, because we are cementing the power of yeah. just a very few people. It's almost as if I, I was thinking this today when I was considering what I was going to say. Um, it's almost as if the politicians and the corporations are intentionally effing this up or making it look like they're effing it up and they're going to leave it to the last minute and suddenly perform a miracle um, just because, again, it cements their power as such. Um, we've already, the UN in 2018, I believe, said in a report that um, whether manipulation would probably have to be in tandem with um, measures to cut fossil fuel emissions. We know they can do weather, manip weather manipulation already. Cloud seeding is a thing. Um, the, yeah. the, so the UN have already tabled that several years ago as a possibility to try and lessen the effects of climate change. Yeah, I, I I've, just... got, I've got a mate who's a pilot and uh, he, he got paid to uh, throw uh, concrete cement dust out of his plane because okay. that that's cloud seeding. Yeah, it used to be the realms of conspiracy theory, didn't it? But in the, yeah. as I say, the UN, I talked about it with uh, um, George Galloway, actually, several years ago. Um, and yeah. weather manipulation is a thing. They, would do, they did it during the Vietnam War. Um, so yeah, to mess did, up yeah. the Viet Cong. Um, yeah. So it, it is a thing. And as I say, my concern is that we will, we're pushing corporations to go greener. We're pushing politicians to act. And, but actually all we're doing is cementing our, our own and slavery as it were, um, when we should be aiming for emancipation. Um, I don't think this is going to end well. I think they'll save the planet, but inadvertently trap the rest of us permanently, even more so. Well, this is already. it. I mean, modern slavery is not in chains. <clears throat> it's not people in chains anymore. It's people in debt. And talking of debt, mm -hmm. that, that's, that's going to lead us on to the NHS. So uh, if you are in debt, you will not be able to afford to get your, uh, your broken wrist fixed. You will not be able to afford uh, glasses for your eyes. You will not be able to afford to get your teeth fixed. You will not be able to afford to get your ears syringed if you're, if you're quite deaf. You will not be able to afford any of these things to have a baby in a hospital It'll cost you um, a grand to hold that baby if it's born in a hospital. So, you know, there are lots of things that we're already learning to live without in, in our NHS. And uh, those things are among them. But also um, the thing is that there's, there's two halves to it as well, isn't there? There's the sell-off of all the land that the NHS owns. Yeah. Um, the P PFI initiatives were brought in under Blair. Blyer, as I like to call him, um, and that sold off all, all the properties and then the properties were leased back to the NHS um, on huge, uh, hugely crushing contracts. And exactly the same is happening to people. They're debt indebted. So when you get your money, however you get your money, whether it's benefits, earnings or, or whatever, whatever it's from, 
what do you pay first you pay your rent or your mortgage or your or your you know if you haven't got it if you've if you've only got a squat then then that's all you can afford then you still have to buy a lock to go on the door don't you so then you have to pay your internet because without internet you're not going to get access to anything benefits um any any support you're not going to get um you know support from the coronavirus people you're not going to get any support from your local council so you you are forced to pay whoever supplies your broadband then you're going to be paying for so in the end of it private dentists etc will say to you but you should have been budgeting for the cost of your dental treatments so how do you budget with nothing you can't no exactly and uh, of course what i mean we're talking in terms of obviously the the, the bill that's being voted on on the 23rd aren't we is, is yes. the is the kind of linchpin for this conversation um big campaigns around that at the minute um um keep you our like NHS the union, public. we own it yeah we own it keep our nhs public nhs workers say no um we're all yeah. are all doing a lot of a lot of work around um, this bill that's going through Parliament. Um, well, the thing is, Lizzie, with this, there was a brilliant line from The Handmaid's Tale um, um, Hulu Channel 4 um, show, which said that when you're put in a pan of slowly boiling water, you don't notice that you're being boiled alive until it's too late. Um, and that's essentially what has happened with NHS privatisation. I mean, Oliver Dowden, who was who still is and was at the heart of the Tory party for many years and was right up until still under Theresa May's administration, um, wrote, a, wrote a pamphlet in the 80s about sounding off the NHS. Um, this is not some new agenda. And essentially oh, what's... No, it's, it's been in, in, yeah, in place it's, it's since Thatcher's time. Drip, drip, drip. Um, that's been going on for decades, as you say. Um, Tony Blair, it was Major's government who introduced PFI, and then Blair sort of put it on steroids, didn't he? Yeah. Um, and and increased it tenfold. But but is this slow kind of drip of well that service isn't available anymore? This service you have to pay for. We're not going to do that anymore. But it's it's essentially the Tories have form with this way of selling off a public service and and the one of the kind of um plans for it was was formed with the railways um they did exactly the same thing with british rail in the 1980s and early 1990s in terms of that they run the service down they painted it as a failing service in the eyes of the public um they will well no actually we don't do we lizzie because we're old um some of us may <laughs> remember the kind of british rail british rail sandwiches that you used to get which used to kind of everyone used to take the mickey out of them um but they intentionally ran this service into the ground um yeah. to then make the case for why it would be better privatized and of course um that happened and interestingly now we're in a period of time where we're seeing the the worst effects of that privatization where even this current Tory administration is having to take back railways into public control because they're so bloody awful <laughs> um, and of course we've seen the full scale from start to finish of the effects of this privatization now but but that roadmap as johnson would probably call it being his catchphrase that roadmap of privatization is what's being done to the nhs it's just slightly slower and slightly stealthier and slightly tricksier as it were um but but it's what's been going on i mean there was a big hoo-ha in 2019 wasn't there about the nhs had cancelled certain treatments um like for back pain and knee operations and earwax removal and so on and so forth um and and this is just kind of continuing apace um again it's one of these things i i think there's an issue though with the tories for the nhs and i think my issue is that and the Tories issue is more broadly that the public aren't that daft to this one. Um, I think the public are well aware of what's going on and, and the Tories themselves paint the NHS as this image of national pride and our great, greatest post-war achievement. Um, and the public are very aware of that. Um, public yeah. are very tuned into what's going on in the NHS. And I don't think 
the Tories are going to get away with, in any way, shape or form, making us pay for all our services. Um, I, I have never thought, and I don't ever think that will be possible. I don't think they'll get away with it. Um, what they will do, however, is restrict the services and we'll have this two-tier system where some of us who can afford to pay um, yeah. will get the best the NHS has to offer. I mean, that's another plan that's previously been tabled um, by Tory administration, having kind of this two-tier system where some people pay a national insurance plus and they can sort of skip queues and, and get better better treatment. Um, I think we'll end up this two-tier system where a lot yeah. of the NHS services are privatised, where if you pay more, you'll get X, Y, and Z better. Um, and we're back to this dystopia again, really, aren't we? It's yeah, yeah, we are. Universal credit dystopia, where everyone else mm. is lumped in with with the kind of the dregs of the of the system, yeah. as it's, it were. It's the, the, I think it's called the well, it's called the sell off and the buyout. So mm. it's forcing mm. those that can afford to to go private for what they can afford to go private for. So my friend, for example, has uh, injured his back. He's been in pain for, for a year now, and he's facing another year of pain before he gets to see someone from on the NHS. So he's saved up um, from, from his work and from, you know, scrimping and saving. He's saved up for a new kitchen, so he's decided that he won't have a new kitchen. His kitchen is 25 years old. He won't have a new kitchen because he'd rather um, have his back looked at. Exactly. And so, that's the position we're putting people are going to be. People are in that position now as well. Yeah, they are. We're not talking five years, 10 years down the track. I mean, we, me and my partner, Nicola, have been in that position. You um, have. We, we've most of her, which, which, as you were saying in the introduction, we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, you had to crowdfund. Well, we could talk about it now. You had to well, most of Nicholas' treatment. treatment and diagnoses um, and care has been private. Yeah. <laughs> it's had to be, partly for reasons we're going to discuss in a minute, um, because it's not available on the NHS routinely. Um, but also because that system already exists, where... I literally booked an appointment for her today to see a gastroenterologist for next Friday. <laughs> Unfortunately, that that already exists. Um, if we try the NHS yearly checkups, is the best yeah. she would have with her gastroenterologist. I, she can see one next Friday, privately, yeah. um, and and that's the, that's the position that many of us are already in. Um, and we're back to this, as you say, it's a, it's a good comparison. Someone saves up for their kitchen. It's, it's the same kind of scenario as the heating or eating scenario. Yeah. I'm not going to leave her in agony if I no, can help her. Why would you? Of course no. you wouldn't. It's just human nature. And if, and if push comes to shove, and I've said this publicly before, if push comes to shove, I'm not that proud that I will not take her private because I will, because I'm not going to see her suffering unnecessarily. Yeah when there could be something could be done about it. But I don't want to be in that position. And no one wants to be in that position. And and it's essentially we're back to heating or eating the same yeah, kind of scenario again. And it's yeah, only how do you worse. fund that? You know, you're lucky enough to have a bit of a platform where you can ask friends and and people that know you around you to, to fund it. Oh, of course, well, that's between crowdfunding. If I didn't have a blue tick um, and 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 the profile I have, it wouldn't have happened. It would no. not have happened. It's just and you that, as you not say, have a choice. we're back to the, the glorious tech companies again have, have have allowed me a platform where people have kindly and extremely generously helped us get to the point we're at now. So no, I can't. I can't just dip into some imaginary pot of savings I don't have um, to do this. <laughs> But and how many people do you think have uh, any pot of savings? I, I, I would. I mean, people don't like to. We're, we're taught, aren't we? We're encouraged not to talk about finances um, in publicly because it's a shame. It's a yeah. shame on us, isn't it? The fact. No, it's that not. We... I've got sixty pounds in the bank. That's all the money we've got at the minute, literally. Yeah. Yeah. Up and some quids in the drawer. Um, so, and of course, we're encouraged not to talk about it. They don't want us yeah. to divulge the reality of our lives. But yeah. I'm quite happy to talk about it. I've got sixty pounds in the bank, few quid in the drawer. Um, yeah. Electric meters on four pounds something, I think. 
gas meters on six pounds something. Um, and that's the reality. And then we should shy away from that fact. Started on electric prepay meters and uh, the corruption that that entails. Oh, I'm my sure God. I'm not the only one who literally the gas is just now ridiculous. It's just eating it up since yeah. the price rise. But anyway, that's for another show, Lizzie. We digress. Yes. Well, let's let's talk about um, you know first of all your love for music and that's oh. got, you went to uh, you went to school to drama school didn't you and, Yes, I did. Um, yeah, um, yeah. That's kind of um, that's, it, it, does it come from that, or is it just because of where you live and the people that you hang around? No, with life life kind life? of life comes in circles, doesn't it? Really, and I always I I trained to be a, a, a classical singer double bassist and pianist actually um when i was younger but this was again back in the day where music education in schools was excellent um <laughs> i'm going Doesn't back exist anymore. 30 years here um where all of this was free on yeah. in schools um we got to do it apart from apart from my mum um managed to scrape together singing lessons for me but that's what i always wanted to do i trained classically as a singer and pianist and double bassist um but also to the side of that i did acting and dance i did ballet tap modern jazz um and i got a scholarship to stage school it was all a bit billy elliott i suppose um got a scholarship to this wonderful stage school um that's that um ruthie henschel if you know your musical theater you know who ruthie henschel is ruthie henschel went to as did um posh spice victoria beckham went there um and so i got Guar a scholarship guaranteed to, to path to riches then <laughs> well, well, yes. Um, I won't say what the teachers said about Posh Spice. Um, again, it's, it's only 20 to 8. Um, so I went to stage school, got the scholarship. Um, I was the only scholarship kid there. Um, everyone else, mummy and daddy was paying. I absolutely hated it. It was horrible. Yeah. Um, the working class boy with all these sort of middle upper class kids. And I left after six months to work in Pizza Hut full time as a dishwasher because I enjoyed that more, quite frankly. Um, so I thought music never going to happen again. Um, but interestingly, through my work and notably through Nicola, really, who encouraged me to do this, um, music came back again into my life. Um, it's always been there for my personal enjoyment, but to employ the skills and the um, sort well, of the thinking and have, theory right? I learned as a teenager, um, I started doing obviously podcasts for the Canary and started doing music reviews for, for the Canary. Um, and then other outlets sort of wanted me to write for them and I do a lot of music reviews now and music interviews with artists as well it's quite um my focus is on dancehall and afrobeats and reggae um which was kind of a natural progression for me really my dad was a semi-professional jazz musician um back in the day he worked um for he was one of Kenny Ball's jazz men if oh, you know wow. jazz you know who Kenny Ball is um yeah. he was one of his jazz men for a while so my I, I grew up in a house surrounded by music um jazz and blues mainly for me that naturally progressed to me listening to soul and hip-hop and now later in life and i've expanded my horizons that's again naturally progressed listening to reggae dancehall and afrobeats um so that's what i do it's mostly kind of dancehall and afrobeats but um <laughs> I, I really i love it i love it it's like everything i did as a teenager um was actually worthwhile and i can now see the benefit of benefit of it not only for myself but also more broadly because music really does have the power to change and a lot of the music i focus on is extremely conscious it's got a lot of political messages in it um mm. it, it, it talks about subjects and issues which are barely detached from the politics that you and i discuss and consider uh, highly yeah. political highly um highly sort of socially aware music um so it it it, it fills fills all my wants and needs essentially this music um it's political it's social it's also brilliant um, and I, I get to employ the skills i learned as a teenager once again some 25 30 years later brilliant brilliant well that leads us on as well to the fact that nicola encouraged you to to follow your heart and pursue your music again and uh it, and she's the reason that you're that you're so involved with the ME. And could you tell us a little bit more about that, please? 
Yeah, okay. So um, here comes the science bit. Um, this is, so you're going to have to pin back your goals, everyone at home, and, and concentrate um, <laughs> because I'll try and make this as straightforward as possible. Um, Nicola lives with something called myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is ME for short. It's also sometimes incorrectly known as chronic fatigue syndrome or CFS. Um, it's a neuroimmune disease, cause currently allegedly unknown. Um, there's been a lot of controversy about ME over the years. It was what was once known as yuppie flu in the 1980s. However, its history stems back a lot longer than that. Um, it was documented that Florence Nightingale, in fact, lived reportedly with ME. Um, but it's most um, come to the fore since the 1980s and this whole ridiculous kind of narrative around yuppie flu and so on and so forth. It's moved forward since then. Um, a lot of research has been done. There's a far greater understanding of it now. But essentially what happens is a lot of people with ME, it comes on post-virally. They pick up a virus or several viruses and never properly recover. A lot of people at home will know about long COVID. It's very similar. The research is sort of coming out now, which shows the similarities between ME and long COVID. In my opinion, long COVID is ME. Um, it's a virus which someone does not recover for and they're constantly plagued by symptoms and illness. The biggest symptom with ME and as is becoming apparent in long COVID is something called post-exertional malaise, which means that any kind of exertion, whether it be physical, mental or emotional, anything that uses up energy in the body, leaves a person worse than when they started that exertion. Essentially, all their symptoms get worse and um, they deteriorate on any form of exertion. That's one of the biggest symptoms. It's also one of the most misunderstood symptoms. People just say, oh, it's fatigue. It's not fatigue. The mechanisms to do with mitochondria and the way that energy production fails in the person with ME make it far more than just fatigue. And the end result in terms of that people can be bed bound for days, weeks or months afterwards is, is far more than just fatigue. So if you ever see fatigue mentioned as the main symptom in ME or as it's called CFS or long COVID, that's not true. That is not what it is. The main symptom is post-exertional malaise. So we have this disease, cause unknown allegedly, um, lots of controversy about it in the media, lots of misrepresentation in the media. Um, there's been a big hoo-ha is probably the easiest way to describe it this year, regarding the National Institute for Health and Care. Excellence, NICE. NICE issues the guidelines for treatment options that medical practitioners in the UK are advised to follow, um, and they issue the guidelines for ME. They hadn't updated their guidelines since 2007, uh, but they said in 2018, I believe, that they were now working on revisiting the guidelines and drafting new ones. The challenge with this is that the current or rather former treatment recommendations for ME were something called graded exercise therapy, which is GET, and cognitive behavioural therapy, CBT, as in talking therapy to, to talk about your symptoms and try and make them better, try and make your post-exertional malaise, which is based on faulty mitochondria, better by talking about it. Um, but that's another matter entirely. Yeah. So these were the two treatment options that NICE previously said worked. This was based on research done, which was called the PACE trial, um, which if you Google it, there's a whole wealth of information on the PACE trial. Um, controversial study into ME and treatment options, part funded by the Department for Work and Pensions. Um, the chief medical officer of the Department for Work and Pensions sat on the committee of the trial. It was headed up by psychiatrists and this trial concluded, it looked at treatment options for ME and it concluded that the best treatment for ME was to do exercise therapy where you gradually increase how much exercise you do and do CBT as well. And these this, this makes people with ME better. Um, problem with the trial was that they fiddled the results. Um, they changed any decent re bit of research, sets parameters at the outset and doesn't change them. The PACE trial changed parameters halfway through the trial to make their results fit, essentially, with what the outcomes they wanted. Um, the study has since been re-evaluated independently and it's found that neither graded exercise therapy or CBT worked, um, but still these treatments were pushed anyway by NICE right up until the 29th of October this year. So 
14 years um, this went on for. There was a huge campaign from people living with ME, advocates, um, activists, campaigners, charities, wanting graded exercise therapy and cognitive behavioural therapy to be removed um, because they'd proven to be harmful. Um, the thing is, and I'm watching what I say here because there might be sort of an uninitiated audience at home. Um, the whole situation with ME and these controversial harmful treatments um, has a lot to do with psychiatry. Um, it has a lot to do with the way psychiatry has almost become an industry in some respects. Um, the way that physical illness is quite often now in modern medicine psychologized. Yeah. That there's somehow a psychiatric reason for someone's physical ill health. Um, mm. Psychosomatic. Psychosomatic, yes, that still exists. Um, it used to be called hysteria back yeah. in the days of the Greeks. It was called the um, wandering womb um, because this is all based, quite frankly, in misogyny. Um, yeah. because the majority of people affected by ME are women. Yeah. Um, but this whole the whole saga with ME and the problems with ME comes from psychiatry. Essentially, the people who did this trial that proposed these harmful treatments were a group of psychiatrists um, who were, quite frankly, more interested in their own careers um, mm -hmm. and, and furthering the psychologization of physical illness than they were in patients. And they still defend the trial and its findings to this day. The reason, two reasons I got involved in ME, I actually got involved before Nicola had the diagnosis. I was already writing about it because I could see what was going on here. Um, one of them was the fact that I am naturally very skeptical of psychiatry. Um, I've said this in articles before. I've never said it on a live thing before. Um, one of the psychiatrists behind the trial into ME um, said that for psychiatrists, it was a boom industry at the minute, um, yeah. which for me says a lot about psychiatry. Yeah. I'm suspicious of the way that what are naturally emotional responses to, quite frankly, the horrors of living under a capitalist system, how they are somehow psychiatrized um, and turned into depression. Um, I think there's a lot of work needs doing on the fact that things that are classed as depressive behaviors or the notion of depression more broadly is quite often, not always, but quite often actually just a natural reaction to the horror of the world we live in and yeah. the system we live under. Um, there's some great reading material out there, which I'll put on my Twitter afterwards. Um, but also, obviously, what drew me to ME was Nicola's situation, um, and therefore we've become very vocal about it. Um, it's Carol Monaghan, SNP MP, um, called it one of the, if not potentially the, greatest medical scandals of the 21st century, essentially that um, the DWP wanting to deny people benefits by saying yeah. that their illnesses were essentially in their heads, psychiatrists yeah. pushing their own careers and their own agendas, um, and a government <coughs> reforms which were were in the Improving Lives um, Disability Green Paper back in 2016, all these forces converged onto ME and this trial into exercise therapy and cognitive behavioural therapy um, and essentially has ruined the lives of, I don't know how many, millions, yeah. millions, millions of people who have to live with this debilitating disease throughout the world. Um, it, it is literally a scandal it is, but it's a political scandal. It's not a medical scandal. It's political. Governments are very aware of what's gone on with this. As I say, the DWP were involved from the outset. Um, it's a political scandal. And this, what's this gone on the, with... Sorry? This is the thing, you know, if you can't continue to hold your head up and function in in the reality of our lives that, that we have to function in, mm. if you can't cope with that in any way, shape or form, um, you know, if, if you have Asperger's or if you're on the autistic spectrum or if you have a nervous breakdown or if you have a physical illness that, that debilitates you in some way, the, the, la the very last thing that's going to help you is CBT. Mm -hmm. and exercise and uh just 
pick yourself up and shrug it off. You can't shrug it off. You know yourself. Exactly. I mean, in no other arena would where a where the main symptom of an illness is exercise and exertion intolerance. Yeah. Would exercise and exertion then be prescribed to make it better? I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. And how on earth, why this was still allowed to go on? And and also to that, why CBT was prescribed as a cure for a physical illness that has its roots in virology um, is how this was allowed to be gotten away with for so long, I don't know. But the problem is it's still being allowed to be gotten away with because we're already seeing in long COVID people are being yeah. given graded exercise therapy the treatment that's just been ruled out for ME that's already being touted yeah. by various well they've um, changed the name to centers. rehabilitation therapy here they've called it um gradu- graded management um, GAM or something GAMI. yes graded yeah, activity graded management is what it's called now it's just repackaged um but the thing is this is the, the whole situation with Emmy and what's gone on also poses far bigger questions as well about how we view medical care and how we view medicine more broadly. The very fact that a, that a physical well, how illness, we view our which have, it has its roots in virology, can for so long be allowed to be dismissed as somehow psychological um, and somehow in people's heads and that they just need a combination of exercise and talking therapy to get better um, is is poses far bigger questions about how we view medicine and And how how we normalize the mistreatment of these people you know these are our friends our neighbors our relatives Mm -hmm. uh, our loved ones that are being yeah. that are suffering, and we're compounding their suffering, and say, "Oh, just bloody grow up, will you?" you yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> Essentially, aren't we? It does, and it, it it does pose bigger questions about ourselves and as a society. Because again, this is not the and the and another factor in ME is that while the political scandal surrounding it is is huge, the treatment of ME patients by the medical establishment and by politicians and by society more broadly isn't actually that uncommon. If you look at other conditions like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which Nicola also lives with, I mean, it takes on average people at least 10 years to get a diagnosis of that. If you look at things like fibromyalgia, the research into that is almost still nowhere near finding a reason for it. Um, Conditions like functional neurological disorder, again, you've got physical symptoms that are being put down to somehow they say they're functional that essentially means there's something psychiatric involved with the reason why their bodies are reacting and it's not just me it's there's a whole whole um spectrum of conditions chronic illnesses which are dismissed in this way and treated in this way and it, it for me the whole situation poses very big questions about how we treat chronically ill people there's also a disparity between chronic illness and disability um which is something else that has to be rectified it's it's a huge 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 topic but at the root of it are literally as as one campaign group calls it millions of missing people whose lives have just essentially been ended um whether that be they have actually died um, because of the ME or they metaphorically their lives have ended because they can't, they're bed bound and can't do anything all the time. And that's the bottom line here. And it, it poses huge questions about how we treat how we each humiliate, other. How we humiliate people on a daily mm-hmm. basis simply because they're, they're, they're ill. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it poses very big questions about us well, as a, we, as a I'm species. Afraid we- We've just about run out of time. And I would like to say to everybody who's been sending us lots and lots of questions, but I'm sorry, I'm here in the studio on my own. I think Gaz in the back room has been trying to answer some of them. If Um, people have asked questions, I will stay on the YouTube for a while and answer anything that's been asked. So if that's where the questions are being asked. um, Yes, I believe they are because of the fact that... um, the Facebook live feed crashed. (laughs) (gasps) I know, I know. That Mark Zuckerberg has got a lot to answer for, Lizzie. Yes. And I, I wonder if they're, if they're all, you know, conspiring against us. (laughs) They they saw that Mr. Topples on resistance TV. Quick, shut it down, shut it down. 
Yes, yes, exactly. So, so I will stay on the YouTube and answer any questions anyone's got. I'm happy. I'll don't brilliant. And I, thank you very much. And I just thank like you for having me. I appreciate the, the length and breadth of um, what we got to discuss. And obviously, yeah, also, P20 uh, solved nothing, COP26 solved nothing. We're, we're trying to save our NHS. Be there on the 22nd of, of November in London to try and protest uh, outside the House of Commons about this ridiculous, awful bill that's going to remove every one of our services that our that our grandparents, great grandparents, whoever that they came back from the war and they fought to get this installed to get our NHS built, and now mm -hmm. the very people that fought it then are trying to remove it now. So be there, please, everybody. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank Good you for having me.